hi, this is Dave Vanderveen, and you've, uh, you're listening to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 30, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about this one. Um, you know, it's been a while since I've, I've posted a podcast, I apologize for that. I've been on an incredible tear around the world, as per usual. Um, in fact, I wrote, uh, I usually draft out th- these podcasts when they're monologues, and then I kind of riff off of my notes. So I, you know, I bounce around a little bit. I hope that's okay. But um, I actually wrote this when I was coming flying from Kazakhstan to Dallas, Texas, which was last week, or I should say earlier this week. It is Saturday here. I'm in Tokyo right now. It's Saturday in Tokyo. I wrote this um, on Tuesday when I was, <laughs> I guess Tuesday, skipping around time zones and, and date days, you know, datelines. It's hard to tell what day it is sometimes. But I was flying on, I think on Monday night, I flew from Kazakhstan to to Germany to Frankfurt and then from Frankfurt to Dallas. So it was probably on that last Tuesday I wrote this. And, and, um, you know, it's just kind of uh, stunning how small the world can be if you're not afraid to sleep on a lot of planes, (laughs) which is what I've been doing lately. So anyways, this podcast is is really, um, it's about a post that I did uh, uh, last week, and it ties in a lot of ideas of things that I've been thinking about um, over the last last couple weeks uh, in between podcasts. The last podcast I did was a, a, an interview in, in uh, Sydney, Australia, with a longtime uh, rugby player, one of the longest playing rugby players in Australia, and Ben Physic, uh, somebody you've heard of before, who does um, weight loss coaching works. Uh, part of the reason I like Ben and weight loss coaching works is because he's helped people transform their behavior and their bodies in the process. This podcast is all about breaking through barriers in your life, and so I think that's kind of good. But um, since that last podcast in Australia, I've had I've had a few interviews that I needed to uh, reschedule that were supposed to have come out. So I'm sorry about that. And um, you know, I've been to Utah, Wisconsin, Michigan, New York, Paris. I think I've been to Michigan like two or three times in a couple of weeks, and it's been it's been it's been a real ride. Um, just heading back to you know when I was coming back from the U.S. from Kazakhstan. Um, a lot of people were saying, hey, where is Kazakhstan? And I posted a lot of images. Um, to put it in perspective, Kazakhstan is the northernmost stan. If you look between India and Russia, you know, going north, of course, you go through Pakistan, Afghanistan. Um, there's uh, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan. Uh, I'm just thinking of these off the top of my head. Uh, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, there may be another one I forgot, and Kazakhstan, which is the biggest and, and the most northern used to be part of the Soviet Union. Uh, for about the last almost 30 years, it's been independent of the Soviet Union. And um, it's an oil-rich country with a small population, but a very big landmass. It touches China on the east. It touches the Caspian Sea on the west. It's bordered on the south by Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and I think Turkmenistan, either Tajikistan or Turkmenistan. I'm just just working from memory here. And the northern border is all Russia. So it's got, you know, it's basically... On the north, kind of the northwest corner of the Himalayas, uh, Mount Tange, I think, is 27,000 feet. And, um, and it has these, it's, it's high desert, so it has these amazing canyons. Took some photos and hiking in the canyons. Uh, we went up in the mountains and looked at one of their, their amazing, beautiful Lake Almaty. It's this beautiful crystal blue lake. Um, and I've skied up there before. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible place with great people. Uh, a lot of the original people from Kazakhstan are kind of what you might think of when you think of Genghis Khan. You know, these people who are nomadic, who live in yurts and, uh, you know, 
are great on horseback, but also you know raise sheep and and uh, are great warriors. Obviously, this is two thousand. Uh, <laughs> this is two thousand nineteen, so people have changed. There's actually big modern cities in uh, in in Kazakhstan, Almaty, and Astana are two of the bigger ones, and um, and there's you know people doing modern things there. But it's a beautiful place to visit. I strongly recommend it, and uh, it's one of our fastest growing markets for Amway. Um, and and for excess, it's a small market for excess, but a fast growing one. And the leaders there have just been absolutely fantastic. I think you remember John Blatt and his wife Marl were interviewed with their daughter translating with Tody translating um, uh, last summer or last May it was. And um, you know they asked me to come back, and so I did. And we had an amazing celebration of a lot of their growth and a lot of things that are going on. Uh, but it's amazing how generous and hospitable they are. Every time I go there, they have they open up their home. They have this magnificent feast for me, and they're just wonderful, loving, kind people. Who, when you when you when you enter into their culture, um, really uh, give a lot of us uh, a good education on what it means to be hospitable and gracious to to people who are traveling from abroad. Um, so anyway, so I, as, as I, what I'd like to talk about um, is a little bit about that exotic trips um, and, uh, and a, I think a remarkable experience with a fellow pilgrim there as well as some ideas about how we enslave ourselves when we fail to live and examine life where we work out our values in, public, in, in the public sphere. So hang on, buckle in, here we go. Uh, Kazakhstan, I just walked through where it's from. You know, I always, you know, as the northernmost stand and being bordering the Caspian Sea, I'm always, I still haven't been to the Caspian Sea and I'm intrigued by it because I read C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian when I was a kid and, and I, you know, I hope at some point to visit there and be able to, uh, to get my gills wet in the Caspian Sea, maybe windsurf or do something exotic there. Um, but, uh, you know, it's this, uh, it's this it's this gorgeous place, Kazakhstan, and I was able to visit this. Um, we, and so we were doing. I should just back up. We were doing these big celebrations for like five days. We had a, a series of events at the Almaty Arena, which is a it's kind of like a, a sports arena, hockey arena, where we you know maybe it would hold ten thousand people or so. And so we were we were doing these trainings and speeches, and then some big celebrations there over of the, my five day visit. And I was able to visit Sharn Canyon, which is their the, kind of their little Grand Canyon, as well as uh, the big Almaty Lake, which is this bright blue lake I talked about near the Tenge Mountains. It's a gorgeous gorgeous place. We had a great time, and I think that you know the best thing about living generously when you, people are hospitable to you or you're hospitable to somebody else is hopefully it helps us think you know you know bigger about ourselves and see the world as a bigger place than just what we have. I think part of living generously is that you move, you know, you, you really think um, that, that what you have isn't just your own, that it's, you know, maybe been given to you by the universe, by God, whatever you want to call it. And that part of your job is to share that with other people you meet, because when you share with somebody else, things grow. Wealth is created. The world's a better place. And I mean, that's the foundation of this whole idea of being an entrepreneur of creation is that you're sharing, you're adding value to somebody else and they're giving you value back. It's their choice to give it back. You can't, you know, you can't force them to, but you know, your job, our job, my job is to, is to offer value to other people on a regular basis. And, um, I think, uh, you know, I, I grew up in, in this Protestant Christian community and I was taught that all good things come from this originating power in the universe that, and that this power loves creation. 
that's ex- it's expanding and growing, and that it's possible as humans to create value together, and that we're kind of the only animals that can deliberately add value, um, and that and that when we do that as a natural part of an experience, it enhances a relationship, and that's kind of where we, you know, that's that's the foundation of the excess brand. That's where we came from. That's what we've been all about. And so when I was coming out of this Sharon Canyon and when I had been hiking, I saw an insanely cool Land Rover Defender 110. I own a Land Rover Defender 110. They're very hard to import into the United States. They're kind of technically illegal unless they're antiques, which makes me want to import one. <laughs> and it was, so it was parked on the rim and it had a big tent on top, all these extra gas cans, um, you know, all the gear for overlanding or driving off-road. And it was, you know, it was black with lots of cool stickers from places that had been. And there was a guy standing next to it, you know, who looked fairly European um, as these local Kazakh visitors were asking if they could take photos of it. And so I asked this guy, I said, hey, is this Defender yours? And he said it was. I asked him his name, where he was from, and he said that he was Danny from Switzerland. Um, he told me about driving from Switzerland to Singapore. I asked him a lot of questions. He's, you know, it's over 10,000 kilometers if you go f- directly from on, by, on a plane from Switzerland to Singapore. Of course, he was trekking and not taking a straight route. Um, in Nepal, he let his girlfriend drive, and she rolled the truck. Uh, he had to rebuild it, he said, uh, which was easy because it's like fixing a Defender. It's like building with Legos. Apparently, you can just pull things off and put them back on. I mean, obviously with tools, but uh, just an impressive guy who'd been driving, you know, all over the world uh, in a lot of countries I hadn't even really considered. Just think, look at a map and look at how you drive from Switzerland, which is in Europe, across Central Asia to Singapore. I mean, he had gone, uh, you know, to Singapore, he'd driven through India, he was driving through the stands at this point, and then he was talking about getting to Africa next. Um I told him I didn't have much to offer him, and uh, you know I like to offer fellow travelers things, share value, but I had some great tasting energy drinks in my backpack. He thanked me. We took some photos together. They're on my Instagram, Facebook page, and we exchanged Instagram information. Later, we connected via a DM, via direct message, and he noticed my posts, the events we were doing at the Almaty Arena, and he asked if he could come check it out. He was just cruising around in his truck, so why not, right? Now, this wasn't my event, this, these events at the Amati Arena. So I checked with Jean Balat and my host, his daughter Toti, her husband Armand, and they said it would be cool if we had them join us. I was the last speaker before Jean Balat on the big celebration night, and I was talking about the history of excess, how we use and share the products to let people discover our drinks and sports nutrition products, maybe become customers and find out more about our business. Um, so at the end of this talk, you know, I had like an hour talk. Um, I showed photos of Danny and myself at Sharon Canyon just a couple of days before. And I asked this audience, so it's 10,000 people in an arena. I asked the people if they wanted a surprise. And so I walked into the audience. I walked up to Danny and his friend, Iman, whom he had brought along. And I told our story, how I'd met him in the canyon and shared a drink. And here they were. The audience loved it. But I think that Danny loved being invited into such a random celebration as well. He told me later, he said, look, I don't need a bunch of celebration or applause, but it's cool to meet so many people who want to celebrate, you know, life and, and going somewhere together. The next morning after this, Danny and I had breakfast and we talked about why he was driving at this point for almost three years across Europe, India, Asia, Central Asia, and why he's planning to drive across Africa. By the way, I asked him if he wanted to do a podcast interview and he's very shy and he said he just wasn't prepared but that another time he'd like to do it. So I'm going to try and get to Uzbekistan and do a, an extended overland trip with him, and we'll probably do a, a podcast from that in the future. 
But Danny told me the reason he was doing this was he was tired of living a normal life in Switzerland. He loved to travel the earth, to meet people that weren't caught up in a mundane existence of going to work, spending time at home, and then repeating the cycle. He said he'd been on the phone the night before. You know, he was in the hotel, so he actually had Wi-Fi. And that he was sick of having conversations with friends back in Switzerland where they were complaining about a broken dishwasher or washing machine. He said, my life is so simple. I'm washing my clothes in a sink and sleeping in my tent or car. But I go where I want and I get to experience the world and so many great people the way that I want to on my own terms. So as I was flying back to the USA, um, that was this was you know, the day after that, Danny sent me a photo of him sharing excess with truck drivers he had met on his way to Uzbekistan where apparently excess isn't registered or allowed yet. <laughs> We'd be a little careful in some of these countries. Um, we were, we are, we're, we're discussing doing, I think it's called the Palmy Highway together. It's a great highway that bisects the country uh, in Uzbekistan in his defender. We'll see where that takes us. But I love, the thing is, I, I just love meeting people who decide the life they've ended up living isn't the one they want to live. They examine their life and decide to change, to live deliberately, to take risks, to break through barriers that might be holding them back, or even worse, maybe locking them inside themselves. Think about that for a minute. Getting to a point where this existence you have of maybe going to work and coming home and eating and sleeping and entertaining and then going back to work and doing it again. We'll talk about this, this economic existence, purely economic existence, can tend to lock us inside ourselves where it seems like it's just us in the world and we're alienated from everybody else. Um, so I just think that, um, that moving out into the public sphere, applying yourself there, applying your values there, um, might be one of the more important things we think about as we think about how we determine value and our value in the universe. Um, the idea of interacting in public life, of, have, of having free and diverse discussions about how we should live, is what I think gives life meaning. It's funny that I met Danny in Kazakhstan as I was celebrating our business partner's success, how they were choosing to redefine their own lives, build their own economic self-determination, and apply their own values to the world. You know, one of the younger couples who I met, they were at this uh, dance party we had after after the, the, the final event. They're very energetic. They're young. They're growing fast. They're having all kinds of success. And they're also very Muslim. Um, you know, the wife had head covering on. Um, the, the husband, you know, they're just very observant, which is wonderful. And I, I love that. And one of the things that one of the leaders told me as I was talking to them, he said, you know, this couple has gotten in trouble with their iman. Uh, you know, the, the leader of their mosque, because he thinks they're doing things too much outside the faith. And and I appreciate that people have faith. I appreciate that people follow a, follow a religious tradition. But I'm much more impressed when people are willing to break through all of the barriers and boundaries in their life to define the life that they want to live, rather than one that's defined by their pastor, preacher, parents, teachers, whomever. It's your life. You need to live it, and you need to be responsible for it. So I'm very excited about that. Um, and so at any rate, there's there's two um, other elements I'll get to shortly. A philosophy podcast from Stephen West called Philosophize This. Strong recommend. Um, the, the, one of the latest ones, he talked about Hannah Arendt, a philosopher post-World War II, and the banality of evil. It's all about the problem of people who lose the ability, particularly post-Enlightenment, as we've gotten in this very scientific societies. 
of you know, a lot of people have lost the ability of interacting with politics in a meaningful way, right? We have in the U.S. we have freedom and democracy, but it's really just a binary set of choices: Republican or Democrat, who basically are doing the same thing. I mean, if you look at the political spectrum of, you know, totalitarianism versus anarchy. They're both sitting right in the middle. It would, if you're in a, a parliamentary democracy in Europe, it would be like having Christian Democrats and Social Democrats as your only two choices. Um, if you don't know what that means, it's just kind of slightly to the right of center, slightly to the left of center. Um, now, no, that's not how it's portrayed in the United States because we like drama, but that's exactly how it actually is. If you're looking at the at the you know how if, if you're actually looking at the real political spectrum. Um, this is a, a podcast my son Skyler turned me on to, and it's something that our whole family listens to now, and we'd like to discuss these ideas. Um, it's short, it's 20, I think 20, 30 minutes, and it's a dense series of really great ideas that I've had to listen to many times, you know, four or five times just to get into it. Um, you know, we, we've also been talking a lot at work at Amway about and at, uh, what Carol Dweck calls the growth mindset and how to create a culture that celebrates lifelong learning. Um, you know, it's all about this idea of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, an idea that you can't change yourself. And, uh, you know, being right, being certain is more important than wrestling with the questions and growing and mastery. Um, obviously, you know, <laughs> the idea there is that people can change, can grow, can become much more than they believe they can. But you have to change how you think about yourself. You can't see yourself as something that can't do things or is limited because of your current talent to only certain things. You have to start seeing challenges and problems as opportunities to grow, as opportunities to learn something, as opportunities to test yourself and practice. She says it's not that you, you fail, it's just that you haven't succeeded yet. And it's um, the idea that when you present something that someone has asked for, if it's not what they wanted, it's not that they give you an F or stop talking to you about it. It's that they say to you, hey, we need to revise this. We need to work on this. This is where you were hitting what I was asking for, and this is where you were missing. Most frustrating thing that can happen to me is when somebody asks me for a proposal, and then they refuse to give me feedback. <laughs> it's literally the definition of the fixed mindset. And so um, these ideas combine into something very powerful, the idea that one reason so many people feel alienated and alone, despite more people living in closer proximity than ever before, that perhaps in an era where we have limited humans in the modern world to what, I mean, we've, we've, we've limited people to what Hannah Arendt would say, um, the economic man. She, she was a World War II era philosopher who studied how totalitarianism arose and why citizens of those countries like Nazi, Nazi Germany, why they tolerated it. Um, this economic man is what she calls the person who exists to do their work and labor, but misses the thing that gives life meaning, our actions in the community, our interactions with each other around what things mean how we apply our values, how we rank those values, and ultimately how we value our lives, how we value our interactions, how we value our, our, our you know, how we, how, we, how we value our organizations, how we, how we value the way that we work and live together in community. That is kind of the definition of politics, how we organize power. In a world where people view themselves as, as merely cogs in a machine, and they either inherit their beliefs and maybe perhaps, perhaps even they refuse to examine their lives, the vacuum of meaning and values can be replaced by anything. 
And unfortunately, if we aren't deliberate in how we shape our values and apply them, someone else without our interests at heart might do it for us. In fact, I would argue they probably will. When this happens in a mass society, it can be very attractive, and that attraction can pull a majority of people towards unhealthy ideas. Ideas, for example, that gave shape to regimes like the Third Reich. One of the examples uh, in West podcast is Adolf Eichmann. He was the Nazi who basically sat at a desk and looked at names and numbers and assigned them by the millions to various work and death camps. He was responsible for the murder of millions of people. When he was put on trial, he was put in a glass box on display. The idea is that you were going to you know, view this monster. And, and I think what pe- people were uh, you know, expected to see a monster, but as Aaron says, he was really uninspiring. They didn't quite get that he was this monster. I mean, I think part of this message, and Stephen West says it, is don't give the Nazis more credit than they deserve. It's not like they were brilliant people making these great decisions who, who really know, knew what they were doing. It's just that they, they took advantage of a vacuum. And, and, and the lack of leadership, the lack of values, the lack of, of reason for being... And, and just created one for people, even though the, the ideas they created were insane. Um, what's, what she's saying about the banality of evil is that Eichmann's evil wasn't deliberate. He didn't live and examine life. He was the ultimate bureaucrat, a follower, a cog in a machine willing to do whatever it took to, to succeed in whatever organization presented itself. He was desperately afraid of acting alone as an individual. He would murder millions of people because he was simply following orders. That unintended evil, the banality of evil, avoiding living a deliberate life may be scarier than the monsters who hate and make up the evil plans themselves. At least they intend it. Thinking about, about all this, I saw a reposted letter from Charles Bukowski, who's kind of this great American countercultural poet, I guess, poet laureate of the... Of the, of the uh, uh, the, I don't know how you say it, the poet lord of the, of the people who are ill-affected in America. And, and I, but I love him. He's so countercultural. He's the original punk rocker. Um, there was a pull quote that I posted on my... That I, so I saw this letter he wrote to his publisher that was reprinted. He's been dead for a while. I reposted it, uh, a, a pull quote from it with the link on my Facebook wall. And this is what the pull quote said. This is, this is um, Bukowski writing to his publisher. You know my old saying, slavery was never abolished. It was only extended to include all the colors. And what hurts is the steadily diminishing humanity of those fighting to hold jobs they don't want, but fear the alternative, is the alternative worse. People simply empty out. They are bodies with fearful and obedient minds. The color leaves the eye, the voice becomes ugly, and the body, the hair, the fingernails, the shoes, everything does. As a young man, I could not believe that people could give their lives over to those conditions. As an old man, I still can't believe it. What do they do it for? Sex? TV? An automobile on monthly payments? Children? Children who are just going to do the same things that they did? There are lots of interesting responses, and you never know how some, something controversial is going to hit different people. So this is me talking now, you know. I post this stuff, and part of what I, I like to post things that are a little controversial to start conversations, and then I like to have conversations to help, hopefully help people not just react but engage. Um, I had one response that would even surprise me a little bit. Uh, this is from uh, Jamail McKinney, nice guy. Um, this is, by the way, somebody who's nice and friendly to me, so don't take it in the wrong vein. This is the problem. I'm going to read it in my tone, and you know his tone is probably even softer than what I'm going to read it as. 
this is what he says to me. He says, to compare slavery the way it was executed then to working a job now is a little dismissive. Jobs typically don't don't scourge you for non-production. You don't get whipped. And if you run away from a job, they don't cut off one of your feet to ensure you don't do it again. But I like but I like you and you're cool and you encourage people to make a better life for their families. Not that you're running for political office, but but if you were something like this statement could be something they would hammer you with. Maybe worth thinking about. Again, the internet lacks lacks voice inflection, controversial tone, not combative tone. Which I really appreciate, by the way. Very, very, uh, Jamal is very, uh, I mean, I think he has every right to post that, every right to think that. That's his immediate reaction to what I posted. Um, And the way he wrote it was really kind. Um, So I replied to him. I said, Jamal, I think this quote by Bukowski is well known and well respected. They aren't my own words, and they are hardly dismissive of slavery in the United States. You might like to read a bit more of Bukowski to understand what he's saying rather than react to it. I'd also recommend Stephen West's outstanding podcast on the banality of evil, which echoes what Martin Luther King said about the same thing that bothered him the most about racism, which wasn't, and this was, he wrote this in the letter to the, uh, a letter from the Birmingham jail. Martin Luther King said the thing that bothered him most about racism wasn't the people who were deliberately racist, but the people who, who did nothing about it. Um, and then I linked him to episode 136 of Philosophize This, Hannah Arendt and the Banality of Evil. Um, and I thought, uh, for a bit of recall, I'd, I'd actually read the, the bit from the Birmingham, uh, from Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, what he actually said about the banality of evil, because I think it's really important. He's writing at this point, you know, he's been arrested in Birmingham. He's getting some criticism from, uh, you know, other pastors who thinks he, think he's a little bit too revolutionary. And, uh, and so he says to them, you know, he's getting criticism for getting arrested, for breaking the law, for being reactionary, etc. This is what he says to those pastors. He says, we can never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany was legal and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. But I am sure that if I had lived in Germany during that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers, even though it was illegal. If I lived in a communist country today where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I believe I would openly advocate disobeying these anti-religious laws. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I, cran- but I can't agree with your methods or of direct action, who p- patronistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Given that criticism, I thought it might be helpful to read Chuck Bukowski's letter in its entirety. Uh, this is from Plaid Zebra. That's where it was uh, republished. And this is Bukowski's letter. He wrote this 30 years ago about ditching the 9 to 5. Um, well, this is, this is, what, this is uh, 
I'll give you the background on Bukowski as well. This is what Plaid Zebra wrote. Before becoming one of America's greatest writers, Charles Bukowski was a blue-collar worker with an alcohol problem, acne scars, and the dream of writing his way out of mediocrity. Before pissing on literary cliches to bring the written word to a more natural tone, Bukowski worked at the U.S. Postal Service. Before that, he worked at a pickle factory. It wasn't until he was 49 years old in 1969 that publisher John Martin offered to pay Bukowski $100 every month until he died on the condition that he quit his day job and become a full-time writer. So Bukowski wrote, I have one of two choices, stay in the post office and go crazy, or stay out here and play writer and starve. I have decided to starve. (laughs) I love that. Bukowski published his first book with Martin's Publishing Company. He went on to publish six novels and thousands of poems. Bukowski wrote this letter to Martin 17 years later about what he felt, what, what he felt like when he ditched the nine to five. This is December 8th, 1986, the year before I graduated high school. Hello, John. Thanks for the good letter. I don't think it hurts sometimes to remember where you came from. You know the places where I came from. Even the people who try to write about that or make films about it, they don't get it right. They call it nine to five. It's never nine to five. There's no free lunch break at those places. In fact, at many of them, in order to keep your job, you don't take lunch. Then there's overtime. And the books never seem to get overtime right. And if you complain about that, there's another sucker to take your place. You know my old saying, slavery was never abolished. It was only extended to include all the colors. And what hurts is the steadily diminishing humanity of those fighting to hold jobs they don't want, but fear the alternative worse. People simply empty out. They are bodies with fearful and obedient minds. The color leaves the eye. The voice becomes ugly and the body, the hair, the fingernails, the shoes, everything does. As a young man, I could not believe that people would give their lives over to those conditions. As an old man, I still can't believe it. What do they do it for? Sex, TV, an automobile on monthly payments, or children? Children who are just going to do the same things that they did? Early on, when I was quite young and going from job to job, I was foolish enough to sometimes speak to my fellow workers. Hey, the boss can come in here at any moment and lay all of us off just like that. Don't you realize that? They would just look at me. I was posing something they didn't want to enter their minds. Now, in industry, there are vast layoffs, steel mills dead, technical changes, and other factors of the workplace. They are laid off by the hundreds of thousands, and their faces are stunned. I put in 35 years. It ain't right. I don't know what to do. They never pay the slaves enough so they can get free. They just, just enough so they can stay alive and come back to work. I could see all this. Why couldn't they? I figured the park bench was just as good, or being a barfly was just as good. Why not get there first before they put me there? Why wait? I just wrote in disgust against it all. It was a relief to get that shit out of my system. And now that I'm here, a so-called professional writer, after giving the first 50 years away, I found out that there are other disgusts beyond the system. I remember once working as a packer in this lighting fixture company. One of the packers suddenly said, I'll never be free. One of the bosses was walking by. His name was Maury. And he let out this delicious cackle of a laugh, enjoying the fact that this fellow was trapped for life. So the luck I finally had in getting out of those places, no matter how long it took, has given me the kind of joy, a jolly kind of miracle. I now write from an old mind and an old body, long beyond the time when most men would ever think of continuing such a thing. But since I started so late, I owe it to myself to continue. And when the words begin to falter, and I must be helped up stairways, and can no longer tell a bluebird from a paperclip, I still feel that something in me is going to remember, no matter how far I'm gone, 
how I've come through the murder and the mess and the moil, at least a generous, to at least a generous way to die. To not have entirely wasted one's life seems to be a worthy accomplishment, if only for myself, your boy, Hank. I really enjoyed this response as well. This was another response to this, this, uh, this, this letter. This is from Byron Rossi, the Rossi brothers. Um, Byron says, There's multiple ways to understand and examine the nuance of what he's saying here. A bit of overgeneralization can break it down into two camps, though. The responsibility to be placed on the worker, like into slaves here, or the employers, which must make them like slave owners. I'm not saying Bukowski is not aware of the fact. This is simply a letter to a friend. But society needs everyone in order not only to function at a base level, but to be enriched together. Writers don't get to have the privilege of a readership that can support their talent through commerce without having the income to do so. This article has a glaring blind spot. The responsibility is on those with power, not those who are worn to a nub every day to find the courage and energy and time to creatively monetize a talent to some sort of more lucrative profession that allows them to consume the more and escape a job that is as much honor and value to society as those who have the privilege to do something a bit more exotic and dynamic as a vacation. So it's, it's, you know, basically if you're, I don't know if I'm reading that as well as, 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 as it reads, Byron did a good job writing that, but, you know, he's basically saying, look, uh, you know, it's not just the job of the worker to leave the workplace, and it's not that every workplace owner is a slave driver, um, but I think it's, it's, we owe it to each other, no matter if you're working in a job or, or you're running an organization or you're an artist, you owe it to yourself and to people around you to treat them like humans and try and make life meaningful and to, and to uh, build a community where people can progress. Um, I replied to Byron. I said I would add that people who can find that I, would, I said I would add that people can find wonderful careers at any level, particularly when the culture and environment of their labor is connected to a growth mindset, a la Carol Dweck. And then I linked uh, Carol Dweck's TED Talk, which is called "Developing a Growth Mindset" with Carol Dweck, D W E C K, from YouTube. And there's a couple ideas around Carol Dweck I think we're sharing when we talk about a growth mindset, and then I'll kind of wrap this up. Um, and this is from a little summary that, uh, that I found uh, on Carol by Alex Vermeer, but it's, it's the mind, growth mindset by Carol Dweck. It's a little summary. This is a quote from Carol. For 20 years, my research has shown that the view you adopt of yourself profoundly affects the way you lead your life. And that's kind of the central message of her growth mindset book. She and her colleagues have found a very simple belief about ourselves, um, will guide and permeate nearly every part of our lives. And this belief limits our potential or it enables our success. It often marks the difference between excellence and mediocrity. It influences our self-awareness, our self-esteem, our creativity, our ability to face challenges, our resilience to setbacks, our levels of depression, and our tendency to stereotype, among other things. So what is this powerful yet simple belief? The fixed and growth mindsets. Much of who you are on a day-to-day basis comes from your mindset. Your mindset is the view you have of your qualities and characteristics, where they come from, and whether they can change. These following two mindsets represent the extreme ends on either side of a spectrum. A fixed mindset comes from the belief your qualities are carved in stone. You, Who you are is who you are, period. Characteristics such as intelligence, personality, and creativity are fixed traits rather than something that can be developed. A growth mindset comes from the belief that your basic qualities are things you can cultivate. You can do that through effort. 
Yes, people differ greatly in aptitude, talents, interests, or temperaments, but everyone can change and grow through application and experience. It's very possible to be somewhere in the middle and, and to lean, uh, you know, to, to lean a certain way in one, one, one area of life and different ways in different areas. Uh, Dweck writes about them as simple either or throughout the book for the sake of simplicity. Your mindset likely varies from area to area. The way it changes your behavior is if you have a fixed mindset, it'll create an urgency to prove yourself over and over. Criticism is seen as an attack on your character to be avoided, where if you have a growth mindset, it encourages learning and effort. If you truly believe you can improve at something, you'll be much more driven to learn and practice. Criticism is seen as valuable feedback and openly embraced. The hallmark of the growth mindset is passion for sticking with it, especially when things are not going well. Following example illustrates two mindsets, and after you read this short vignette, you can ask yourself how you would respond. One day you go to a class that's really important to you, and you like it a lot. The professor returns the midterm papers to the class. You got a C plus. You're very disappointed. That evening on your way back home, you find you've gotten a parking ticket. Being really frustrated, you call your best friend to share your experiences, but you're sort of brushed off. How would you respond? What would you think? If you thought, what a crummy day, I'd feel like a failure. I would be frustrated. I wouldn't feel motivated to study for the final exam. Maybe I'm just bad at that class. Then maybe you tend towards the fixed mindset. If you thought, well, I probably shouldn't have parked there, and maybe my friend had a bad day, I'd have to study harder for the final. Then maybe you tend towards the growth mindset. I'd add to this, this is from me. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you'd get the C plus and be pissed off and be like, ah, shoot. But then maybe you'd also realize that you just said, oh, shoot, and you got upset that you got a C plus and that that doesn't have to be you and that you can change the C plus and you can change your attitude and you can change the reaction and the reaction doesn't have to define you. And I think that's kind of a growth mindset also, but maybe one that's a little bit more, um, how do you say it, maybe a little bit more aware (laughs) of who you are and how you respond or react, and how you can become better despite that. That You don't have to be defined by your lizard brain, by your animal responses. So I think this small belief can have a big influence. Um, and, you know, the fixed mindset says that smart people succeed. The growth mindset says people can get smarter. And I think your mindset is the view you adopt of yourself. Um, Carol Dweck mentions this example. We offered four-year-olds a choice. They could redo an easy jigsaw puzzle or they could try a harder one. Even at this tender tender age, children with the fixed mindset, the ones who believe in fixed traits, stuck with the safe one. Kids who are born smart don't make mistakes, they told us. The growth-oriented kids welcome the harder puzzle, finding a safer puzzle to be boring. But those are just kids and toys. Does your mindset have any influence on more important decisions? It turns out they do. One of the great many examples given by Dweck deals with the university students making decisions that will influence the rest of their lives. Who would pass up a free opportunity to improve their life success? At the University of Hong Kong, everything is in English. Some students are more fluent than others, and this can have a big impact on their success. As students arrive to register for freshman year, they're asked if they would like to take a free course to improve their English skills if the university provided one. It turned out that those with a fixed mindset were not very interested, and those with a growth mindset were. They were absolutely interested. This is a perfect example of how the fixed mindset turns people into non-learners. 
The fixed mindset stands in the way of development and change. The growth mindset is a starting point for change. But people need to decide for themselves whether efforts toward change would be most valuable. And, and, and so I'm going to leave that there. You can read more about uh, Carol Dweck. I hope you listen to Stephen West's podcast. Maybe read a little uh, Charles Bukowski. Um, but where it all comes together for me is this. You know, as I was traveling in Kazakhstan and as I was meeting fellow travelers and as I was meeting people who have become a part of our business, of our journey together, of this life that we're each trying to build as a, as a community, you know, you really start to segment and separate out people who get it and have woken up and are on a journey and a path. And it's hardly about arriving. It's hardly about getting to a place. I mean, the places, the destinations are all very interesting. And it is fun to arrive at different points. You know, graduation ceremonies can be delightful. But that's not why you learn. That's not why you study. It's not for the diploma. And it certainly isn't for a job. It's to improve your mind. It's to be aware of who you are. To examine your life. To wrestle with the big questions. And please, dear God, not to have an answer. I mean, if, <laughs> if you went to school to get answers or you go to church to get answers or you think the big questions in the universe are about finding out the answers, you might not like this and you might not like me, but I think you're absolutely foolish. I think the great wisdom is from the wrestling with it. I think that's the people that you know the universe calls us to be. If you believe in God and the Jewish, Judeo-Christian, you know, the God of Abraham... You know, when when Isaac is called Israel, it's because, or excuse me, when Jacob is, when when God wrestles with Jacob at the Jabbok River, I believe that's right. I better look this up real quick while I'm talking. <laughs> Who did God wrestle with there? I haven't even thought about this for, um, uh, yeah. So when when Jacob wrestles with God, I didn't get that right. Um, you know, that's when, when, uh, I'll just read this to you real quick. Jacob wrestles with God. That night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two female servants and 11 sons and crossed the ford at the, of, of the Jabbok river. After he had sent them across, he sent over all his possessions and he was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So the hip was wrenched as he wrestled. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And then Jacob said, please tell me your name. And he replied, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And and so Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The whole point there is I think that, you know, if you, just for the sake of the story, let's believe that that was God and that was a man named Jacob who lived, you know, thousands of years ago. Um, you know, probably probably like six, six or 10,000 years ago. Um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty interesting story. It's the God of the universe, if the universe wants us to wrestle with it, and it wasn't about winning the wrestling match, it wasn't about getting an answer, it didn't even get the name. But it was the wrestling with it. It was the embrace, the engagement, 
I think maybe that's the point. Live the examined life. Apply values in, in the public sphere. Change them when they don't work, when it's not the right ones. Find the best way to live and to live in community with other people. And live an enriched life. This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please uh, remember this is not a spectator sport. Get out there. Wrestle with the big questions. Whatever you do this week, above all else, please be kick aspirational.